1986. Address to Christians for Brother Bruce Conrad. Perhaps to, perhaps to start, we could just turn to a verse in Timothy. First Timothy in chapter 1. And verse uh, 18. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. I should perhaps explain to you a little bit my exercise for, uh, at least on my part, for being up here this afternoon. And it really goes along these lines. I've had it upon my heart for some time to take up the subject, if the Lord will, of, of service and of ministry and, and of priesthood. Uh, most of us in this room, at least, are familiar with the fact that God has made us all priests. And we're also aware that he's made us all his servants. And when I considered those two aspects of things, it just came before me that perhaps it would be good to back up even a little further. And uh, then I recalled that I had read some years ago from our brother C.H.M. an expression that, uh, that he mentioned in one of his uh, books, whereupon he looks upon uh, all believers as uh, warriors and as workers and as worshipers. And so perhaps this afternoon, though I, I feel uh, a little bit overwhelmed by the, uh, this line of things, we might just look at ourselves as warriors, as being in a scene of conflict and the different types of warfare that we've experienced, that we will experience, and, uh, and that line of things. Firstly, if we turn back to 1 Samuel 17. And verse 50. 1 Samuel 17 and verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until thou come to the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way to Shearim, even unto Gath and unto Ekron. And the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines, and they spoiled their tents. I suppose before we discuss what we might properly call Christian warfare, we should start at the very beginning of things with the fact that the Lord Jesus here, as typified in David, single-handedly, himself alone, accomplished a, a mighty victory at the cross of Calvary. The Lord Jesus was sent forth from the very bosom of the Father, and he was sent into a scene to discharge all that stood against us, and he did that on the cross of Calvary. In John 19, we have recorded there what some have termed the victor's cry. 
when he says in our translation, it is finished. And perhaps uh, you're indebted as I am to our late brother, Christopher Willis, who uh, has left us uh, some uh, tips on, uh, on the original language. And I think it was he that explained that, that, uh, that in the Greek, that, uh, that word, that cry that the Lord Jesus uttered, I think it was telestei, was really the cry of the victor. The cry that a mighty uh, conqueror would, when he returned back to his home city, that they would have a parade up the main street, and that cry would be given to left eye, it is finished. And so the Lord Jesus there uttered the victor's cry, and the, and the battle was won. The battle was all over. And so in a certain sense, and hopefully we'll return to this later, the Christian warfare starts after an accomplished victory by the Lord Jesus. And there is an expression that sometimes we hear about the victorious Christian life and this kind of a thing. I've been a little puzzled by that. Not really sure what's meant by that. But I think we can be very sure if we rest our, our minds upon the Word of God and see that every, every believer, everyone who has put their trust in the Lord Jesus is made more than a conqueror through him that loved us. We've been brought into a wonderful victory, not one by us, but one by another. A little flock hymn book, which is a precious legacy left to us, is filled with hymn after hymn uh, that, uh, in addition to the scripture, though not inspired, it can help us uh, to understand and to cause us to dig into the scriptures and learn this precious truth. And so, as believers, that's where we start, and that's why I read from this passage. That, you know, though David's brethren said, well, why did you come down to see the battle? There really wasn't much of a battle there at all. There was uh, an army of Israelites on one side and an army of Philistines on the other, and really no battle at all. It was more or less a standoff. But after David uh, slew Goliath, who typifies uh, Satan the adversary, then there's a battle. Then the Israelites uh, take off after the Philistines and they rout them. Now, first of all, I'd like to, to turn back to Romans chapter 7. And start with the type of warfare of which I might say the Lord Jesus, though he now there at the Father's right hand can sympathize with us in this type of warfare. He himself did not experience what we have here in Romans 7. In Romans 7, without reading the whole chapter, we've had this before us recently in the readings in Romans, which for the ones I, I came to where I felt were very profitable. We had before us that there's a struggle in here. And the struggle is based upon the fact that, well, if we read verse 23, maybe this verse, uh, just to pick one, would be, uh, bring it before us, verse 23, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. If we trace down through this chapter, we see that the person who is... Uh, who ha is having these experiences in Romans 7, uh, sees that there are two opposing forces in him. And you would almost uh, feel that he's being torn by these two opposing forces. He finds within him a desire after the things of God. And you can trace them down. Uh, he, uh, he desires, uh, uh, he delights in the law of God after the inward man. He has right desires and right motives and right, you might say, sensitivities in a spiritual way but he doesn't find it in, in himself anyway to accomplish uh, the good. But he finds also as well this force working in him, which just tends to leave him captive. 
And so at the end of the chapter, he comes to this conclusion, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now, this is a type of warfare which I would say at the start is not typical Christian warfare. This should not be, uh, that, that is that which we have in this chapter, should not be characteristic of you and I as believers in our daily life. We may feel some things at times whereby we might feel difficulty uh, with a particular trial or a personal problem. We might sense a little bit of a frustration or helplessness, but that ought, we ought to realize that's a far different thing from the helplessness and, and the bondage, the wretchedness that we have in this chapter. Now, when many souls are brought to know the Lord Jesus as Savior, they go through sometimes a period of many years, really of agony, a period of years whereby they have life uh, given from God, as we had before us in our reading in Acts with Lydia. Uh, she worshipped God, and there was stirring in her soul a response to what light she had been brought into, worshipping the true God. We've read of Cornelius in the same book and how that he was a, a, a godly, a pious soul who sought after God and many others too and perhaps in your own soul's experience you can look back to a time even before you knew the Lord Jesus, before you, it, it, it had come to your knowledge that Jesus was God, indeed the Son of God, that you had these stirrings after the good but you felt hopelessly enslaved in always doing the thing that you chose not. This is a warfare that takes place in a soul before they know what we might call deliverance. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And so in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And then in uh, chapter 8 and verse 3, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We might say in Romans 7 that what we have is a description of what we would call the new nature. We don't read that term in Scripture. What we would call the new nature and the old nature. And so sometimes we might mistakenly say, well, you know, the new nature and the old nature, they war together. And perhaps we know what we mean, but it's not really quite right to say that. What we have as proper Christian warfare is over in Galatians chapter 5. And verse 16. Galatians 5 and verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit... And ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do, or that really it should be rendered, so that ye might not do the things that ye would. In other words, the tendency of this warfare is that it's possible that you might not do the things that you would. Not that you can, but its tendency is that you might not. Now we experience this on a daily basis, don't we? We experience this on an hourly basis, perhaps. And here we have proper Christian warfare, a type of warfare that goes in right inside these hearts, these souls' fires. You know, I was thinking in uh, considering this whole subject recently that in Nehemiah 4, you have the, uh, the case there where because of the enemy, as they were built, rebuilding the wall, 
Because of the enemy and their need to be watchful, they were building with uh, trowels in one hand and sword in the other. And yet it also says there that they had uh, uh, bowls and spears and habergens. And in meditating upon that, I thought to myself, at least it suggested it to me, that there's different kinds of warfare. There's the habergen, there's the real near, close, what uh, people might call hand-to-hand combat. Very intimate, very near. And so we have trials in our own particular inward life where we have that which would seek to enslave us or to hold us down or to hold us back or rob us from displaying Christ here. And we have these tendencies and it's, it's an inner warfare that we desire daily to walk in the spirit and not to fulfill flesh's, uh, flesh's lust. Then there are things which are more outward, which would be like the spear and finally the things which are more at a distance and more public which is the character of warfare that, that we should get to shortly. But I might just say here that Scripture is very precise in its language and that, you know, there are the expressions that the old man, we read, we read the expression the old man in the New Testament, I believe in three places. And you can trace this at your leisure, but I believe whenever the Scripture uses the expression old man, it's always in the past tense and always in connection with that part of us connected with the first Adam that God sees forever as put away. We should we should just find, I think Romans 6 has one of those. Yes, Romans 6 and verse 6. And there's another in Colossians and another in Ephesians. Romans 6 and verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed or rendered powerless, that henceforth, we should not serve sin. And so, in this passage, as well as in the other two, if we look at them sometime, we'll see that the old man, that which we were as children of Adam, by birth, God sees us now as put away. The death of the Lord Jesus, as seen before God, has availed that he now sees you and I as put away before his sight in that connection forever. If any man be in, in Christ, there is a new creation. We're new creatures in Christ. He sees us now uh, all of us, uh, as under the, the uh, second man, the last Adam, he sees us in that condition now, uh, in a new condition entirely. The old man, so if we were to say, well, it's my old man, again, we don't want to make one another offenders for a word. But scripture seems to reserve that term for that which we were and which we aren't any longer. But we say, but there is that in me which still seems to, <clears throat> seems to work. Scripture calls that the flesh. And so the flesh, you might say, is that energy, that which we might call in our own language, which is perfectly fine, the old nature. The flesh is that in us which is not going to ever get any better, which has been the same, and uh, you might say it's incorrigible. An old brother put it before us once in Palmyra. He said, you know, the flesh is just like garbage. You, uh, you put it in the garbage can because it's no good to you. You take it out back and you put a lid on it. He said, you can come back a day later, it's still garbage. You come back three days later, it's garbage. You come back 30 years later, it's garbage, etc. And this brother was quite aged and he said, you know, the flesh doesn't get any better no matter how long it's there. No matter how many years you walk with the Lord, that which is born of flesh is flesh. And it cannot be improved upon, but that which is born of the Spirit is the Spirit. And so we have this type of warfare in us. This is proper Christian warfare. It's that in us, younger folks here, I hope this is this 
you have this warfare in you too if you know the Lord Jesus. You have in you a nature, our, our son calls it the little bad man. And uh, he has in him, and you have in, in you too if you're a believer. You have these two natures in you. These two forces. The moment you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, why, uh, God did something wonderful. He sent the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to take up His residence in your body. Just the way uh, you live inside of a house or you sit inside of a car, uh, God has sent the Holy Spirit to indwell your body. And that Holy Spirit exists in there and He is the energy for you to walk uh, in the new life. And so this warfare takes place and you have what uh, what we what scripture calls the flesh or let's say my we uh seeking to instruct our children in these things that there is that in them which will always lead them astray. If a mom or dad says uh uh John I want you please if you would to uh to take your books to your room. Well if there's that within you which says I just don't feel like taking my books to my room. I feel like doing this. Well uh, you just say to yourself, as a, as a young Christian warrior, you say, if I'm going to please the Lord, if I'm not going to just be a, a tool of, of Satan, if I'm going to please the Lord, I'm going to realize that that voice that just wants to do my own will is the flesh. And that'll never make me or anybody else happy. And so you'll find that if you just stop and think about it a minute, God will bring a verse before your mind, or even just the sense that it's best just to please the Lord. And uh, again, as we kind of think in simple terms with young children, I like that hymn that, uh, that we sing, if we trust and obey, uh, there's no other way to be happy with Jesus but to trust and obey. And so whether it's the youngest child of, uh, of seven or even three or four who knows the Lord Jesus as their Savior, they have this warfare going on in them, just as the oldest uh, saint in this room has this same warfare. Some have likened this type of warfare to the warfare that the children of Israel experienced with Amalek as they were just coming out of the land. And scripture says that there is going to be war with Amalek from generation to generation to generation. It's not going to go away. And so when the Lord Jesus comes and takes us up, uh, that type of warfare will cease. We turn over to Ephesians 6. <clears throat> Perhaps it would be Good to read part of this passage that is very well known. Ephesians 6 and verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against <clears throat> principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with the truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, 
and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now here we're fully on the ground of Christian warfare. And perhaps we should back up, and I've asked myself this question, and perhaps it's occurred to you, why, why are we talking warfare? <clears throat> Is this just something, just the apostle chose to use this type of analogy, or, or what? Is there really a conflict now? If we hold our place there in Ephesians and turn over to Timothy again, we will notice that when Paul wrote to Timothy in his two epistles, he uses several references to warfare. We read 1 Timothy 1 and verse 18, wherein Paul enjoined him, Timothy, that thou, thou by them mightest war a good warfare. I think also in the sixth chapter of this uh, same epistle. And verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Others translate that verse, lay hold on that which is really life. Whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. <clears throat> In the second epistle to, from, uh, to Timothy, in uh, chapter 2, Verse 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And so on. And then over in verse, uh, chapter 4, in verse 7, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. There are numerous other references to warfare in the epistles of Paul in the New Testament and so on. So we might say, well, what is the battle about? We started out by referring to the fact that the Lord Jesus accomplished a victory on the cross of Calvary. And nothing can be added to that victory. Nothing ever taken away uh, from it. Uh, that which uh, God does is done forever. And so, what, what is the battle? What is trying to be gained and by whom and what is lost? Let's, let's turn back to Joshua. <clears throat> Bear with me if we jump around a lot here. As our late brother Adrian Roach said, God never wrote the Bible to make us lazy. Joshua 24 and verse 12. And I sent the hornet before you, which drave them out from before you, even the two kings of the Amorites, but not with thy sword, nor with thy bow. And I have given you a land for which ye did not labor, and cities which ye built not, and ye dwell in them, of the vineyards and olive yards, which ye planted not, do ye eat. In the first chapter of Joshua. Joshua 1 and verse 3. Well, perhaps we should read from the first verse. Now, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, 
Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. Now this would seem to be a paradox, a seeming contradiction. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. In other words, to paraphrase, we might say that Joshua is saying, or that it's said to us as believers, if you don't put your foot in it, if you don't stand in it, and remember in Ephesians 6 there was a reference, having done all to stand. If we don't walk in it as we say, or if we don't stand in it, it's not ours. We don't have it. Can't say that it's ours. We haven't possessed it. And we'll go into hopefully what what this is that we're seeking to possess. But yet if it is possessed, and if there is, as says in, in other places, good success in the spiritual warfare, then we don't say, oh, I won this by my valor. No, we realize, that have I given you. A vineyard that I drank that I didn't dig didn't plant, a well that I didn't dig, and a house I didn't build. And yet we need to possess it. What is this kind of a warfare? This is true and proper Christian warfare. And basically we might say that we're in a scene, we're left here in this wilderness, and after all, God could have taken us out one by one the day we got saved. But he left us here in this scene, specifically, among other things, that we might learn warfare. There's a passage in, uh, in Judges chapter 1. Excuse me, Judges chapter 3. Some years later. Judges 3 and verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as many of Israel as had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war, at the least such as before, knew nothing thereof. Verse 4. And they were to prove Israel by them, to know whether they would hearken unto the commandments of the Lord, and etc. Again, it's a later time, but it says specifically that the Lord allowed an enemy to remain in the land, so that those who were too young to have known all the wars of Canaan, they would learn warfare this way. He would leave this enemy on purpose because warfare had to be learned. What is Christian warfare? It's learning to possess in a practical way what's laid before us in Scripture as our portion. It's given to us. We sometimes speak about Paul's doctrine or we speak about John's ministry and these kinds of things. And I sometimes have to hang my head in shame that we're, we're, we're much more conversant with these things as doctrine, which is a real blessing, than we are familiar with them practically. And again, if we aren't standing or walking in these things, and I say this to my own soul, <clears throat> I sometimes wonder after a meeting like this, as I drive away home, if, if I feel more convicted about what was said than anyone else. <clears throat> But again, the possession of these things is where the warfare comes in. And so, getting back to Galatians 5 again, without turning to it. An intimate warfare in our own persons. As 
Now, not the new nature warring against the old, because after all, what did the new nature avail for the man in Romans 7? Nothing. All it was was, you might say, frustrated. It had right desires and right motives, but he just felt uh, at the end of it all that he was wretched. And what's more wretched than desiring something that you can never have? Like when you're stuck in, uh, in snow or mud and you spin and spin and you just go deeper and deeper. What a wretched experience. And if you've, if you've gone through this in your days before you knew the Lord Jesus as Savior, you, you know what this means intimately. But now we have not the new nature itself warring, but we have the Spirit of God given to us. The Lord Jesus, having been raised by the glory of the Father, he sent the Comforter down. He sent the Spirit of Christ down to reproduce in us Already we possess life to reproduce in us through his power the very life of Christ in a believer. And this is something altogether different. This is where we burst out of Romans 7 and we come into the liberty expressed in Romans 8. Romans 8 is full of references to the Spirit. And so now we don't just have the desire, but we have the ability to bring it out into a practical fruition. <clears throat> to bring these desires into fruition. How? The new nature is going to beat and, uh, and put the old nature down? No, that'll never happen. But through dependence and through the Spirit of God, there can be victory in the personal, you might say, uh, intimate warfare that goes on with us. And if there's not that kind of success, there's never gonna, we're never going to have to worry too much about the kind of warfare we read about in Joshua or in Ephesians 6 or some other place. Let's face it. If you and I are succumbing to the flesh in our daily life, whether it's a, a tendency towards anger or towards a, a critical spirit or some other indulgence or some other fleshly difficulty, we might as well not worry too much about the warfare in Ephesians 6 because Satan will leave us all alone because he knows we'll have no power. The two are connected, the inward and the outward. And this is why I believe the Apostle Paul, who was certainly in the thick, of uh, this type of warfare, why he constantly, when he wrote to his dear son in the faith, Timothy, he would always enjoin him in a double way, take heed unto thyself and the doctrine. Two types of warfare. Take heed unto thyself and the doctrine. There was always care, exercise towards one's own personal inward struggle, <clears throat> if we would call it that, that there would be good success in the spiritual warfare. In Joshua, you remember that times of failure, what did they have to do? They had to get back to Gilgal. They had to get back to that for them what was a geographical place where they would remember the very basis of their position in the land, where they would remember that place where, there was, where circumcision took place, which pictures to us the setting aside of the flesh, where they would remember how they were brought across Jordan dry shod and how the ark was brought, and as soon as the priest's feet came into the water, the water stopped, and all those kinds of things. And so for you and I, sometimes, uh, the Lord allows us to be called short. And what do we have to do? We realize without too much thought that, ah, uh, we've just, we've lacked watchfulness. We've been a little careless. And the enemy has just seemed to got us uh, preoccupied in forgetting that we are a heavenly citizens and heavenly men, and that we serve the Lord Christ. We go back in our own uh, soul to Gilgal, and we judge ourselves and we say, I've been allowing this in my life that is robbing me of power and joy, and so on. And so the two types of warfare are connected. If we turn uh, now to Second uh, Kings chapter 2, I'd like to dwell a little bit on, uh, I think that was 
place where Elisha <coughs> sees Elijah taken up. Yes, Second Kings chapter 2. Because I think this is very important. I think it's very important to see that <coughs> the difference between the frustration, if I would call it that, in Romans 7, and the, and the good and normal and likely prospect of success that the Spirit of God holds before us in the other parts of the New Testament, the difference is the indwelling of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the energy which energizes that new nature and through dependence provides power. In 2 Kings chapter 2, you remember Elijah was going to be caught up. And Elisha is following him because in verse 9, well, I'll read the, the verse, 2 Kings 2 and 9. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither. And Elijah went over. Down in verse 19. Elisha goes to Jericho. And the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord seeth. But the water is not, and the ground barren. And he said, Bring me a new cruise, and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. And he went forth unto the spring of the waters, and cast the salt in there, and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. Someone has said that you can see wonderful pictures and types of Paul's doctrine in the ministry of Elisha, and I feel that's very true. Precious, precious types. God knows how we learn, and uh, so graciously he has given us in the New Testament explicit teachings, verses which say such and such and such and such. And then, marvelously, he has given us these inspired histories, personal histories, national histories, and all these things because he knows that we learn by pictures and types. Now, here I would just suggest that Elisha is a picture of a believer. And his power comes not merely from having companied with Elijah, but seeing him when he's taken up. And so we would say that, like, it, like we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verse 18, For we all, with open or unveiled face, the veil taken away, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, even from glory to glory. 
next to the last verse of 2 Corinthians 3. And so, someone has said that that verse is really a key uh, to a successful or happy Christian life. Beholding with a veil taken off the face, beholding the glory of the Lord, not just the Lord, but his glory, where he is at the Father's right hand, where he has positioned himself to be our great high priest. He's positioned himself there to, to be, you might say, the one to help us along in this warfare. And so Elisha sees him there, and what does he do? He rents his own garment. He throws it away, you might say. He picks up Elijah's mantle and he goes back. Did Elijah tell him? Did he have instructions? After you see me taken up, you just rip your clothes, take them here, and then take mine and go back and, and start and first go to... I don't think he had any of that. But I think there was something working in his soul. Something happened to Elisha at that point. He realized that when he saw Elijah taken up, that he had what he had desired. He had a double portion of that spirit. He had a power now, a source of power. And what does he do? He begins to imitate Elijah. He takes up Elijah's mantle. He's, you know, Elijah had done that on the way over. He does it on the way back. Smites the waters, they go across, and Elijah goes across. And begins a wonderful ministry, a gracious, healing, for the most part, ministry. A ministry of blessings. And this is a wonderful portion that's left to us here as believers. That God would, has, has given us the privilege, uh, to be, uh, with Him, dispensers of rich blessings. But what's the key? Seeing Him where He is. You say, I have no power in myself, and neither do, none of us do. But as we look up uh, to the throne of God, and we see the Lord Jesus there at the right hand of the Majesty on high, and we read such passages, if you hold your finger there, as we have in Colossians 1. Colossians 1. I want to read from the middle of verse 9. <clears throat> Someone had this part of the verse above their fireplace once. It, it has always helped me to remember it. Desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that ye might be smart, no, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. <clears throat> this is the verse I was thinking of. Strengthen with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. To be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. The measure of the might, the measure of the resource that we have now in this wilderness scene is the measure of his glorious power. And we can <clears throat> read in other passages that the, that the same grace and that glory which raised the Lord Jesus from the, ver from the dead and seated him at the Father's right hand in glory is the same power that avails for you and I to go through our lives day by day. How little we avail ourselves of it. But this is what's available to us. Not the frustration of Romans 7. Oh, I desire to do good, but I always do the wrong. Not that kind of a thing at all. But a resource on high in the Lord Jesus that we might be strengthened according to his glorious might. And so, beholding, looking up, seeing the Lord Jesus there as our resource will give us strength. Being occupied with him and with his glory will give us the strength and the resource. And so Elisha goes back. He imitates Elijah. 
And then in verse 19, bring me a new cruise and put salt there, and they brought it to him. <clears throat> there was, you might say, there is, in Romans 7, you might say a spring that is just a cursed spring. He, he, he finds within him just a, a source of things that is just, it is of no value and of no help. And so what does Elisha do? Bring me a new cruise. And who was that? And put salt there in. And what was that? The devotedness, the very... When God sent the Lord Jesus down into this scene, why, there was, there was a man for the first time ever on the earth that God could delight in. A man who walked according to a totally different motive. A man who walked in his, uh, his, every, his every thought and his every impulse was something that God could delight in. This was a new cruise, and there was salt in it. There was that <clears throat> salt, uh, as we read in other places, was never to be lacking in any offering. And you say, well, what does salt mean? And I've pondered that for some couple of years now. And I'm beginning to get the impression that salt is just something that gives a sort of an inward, dogged, devoted determination to do the will of God. There was that in the Lord Jesus as typified in the, uh, in the coverings of the tabernacle. There was the badgered skins. There was the ram skins dyed red. And there was that in the Lord Jesus whereby he would set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem. Whereby he would look past and go beyond and overcome all the shame and the spinning. And all the uh, senseless arguments and the false accusations. And go on not just to Calvary but to go down into death the three hours of darkness and anything that was before him because he was going to do the will of his father and so this was a vessel of a totally different kind it was a new cruise and there was salt therein and now the Lord Jesus having come and done the father's will and having been raised up to his own right hand the spirit of God is now active in you and I to reproduce in you and I in spite of what we were by nature as under the first Adam, but to reproduce now in you and I the same life, to have the same motive, to be energized by that same power, and to have an effect upon this world that was similar to his. <clears throat> Peter tells us to walk in his steps. And I, I like to, I always remember that analogy someone said that a young boy following his father across some crusty snow the father takes big, long steps, and the son can't match them, but he walks in his steps, walks along behind, and this is what we're called to do. So I think this is a lovely thing to remember. In ourselves, we're still as hopeless and helpless as the man in Romans 7, but now having experienced deliverance and having the Spirit of God within us, uh, we can have a good success in our spiritual warfare. Now let's turn for a minute, our time is uh, just evaporating, back to 1 Samuel. In the same area, I think it was chapter 17. David comes down to see how his brethren fare, not because he was curious or just to see some battle as a curious child as his brethren accused him of, but because his father sent him down. It's a lovely answer in verse 28. Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? And verse 29, And David said, What have I now done? 
Is there not a cause? Another translation renders that, has it not been laid upon me? And so it's a wonderful consolation to us in the difficulties of the pathway when we remember that the difficulties we get into as we walk, seek to walk to please the Lord, as we seek to walk in the Spirit so as not to fulfill flesh's, flesh's lust, that the difficulties we encounter then are not difficulties that we've taken upon ourselves. <clears throat> the Lord said to Gideon, Go in this thy might, have not I sent thee. And so having the sense that whatever, whether it's our service or whether it's uh, these aspects of Christian warfare, that it's something the Lord has laid upon us, well, we can say, oh, that's, that's all I need to go on. The Lord has laid it upon me. And we can say, after all, who goeth to warfare at his own charges? If the Lord has asked me to walk those six steps in that direction, he'll give me the strength to do it. And there's a reason, even if I don't understand it, there's a reason I should go in that direction or say this thing or go and speak to that person or deny this request or whatever it might be. But that's a lovely thing. Has it not been laid upon me? <clears throat> but the reason I turned back to chapter 17 was <clears throat> in regard to looking upon David now, not as a type of the Lord Jesus, but as a type of you and I as believers in our own warfare. You know, there are aspects of things occasionally that we have to get involved in that are very public. And we can all can say, well, those are conflicts. And it's good to remember that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You and I may have difficulties together as brethren, but we're not wrestling against each other, and it's good to remember that. And whenever there's difficulties amongst brethren, it's good to remember that that's simply what they are, difficulties amongst brethren. <clears throat> and I think in we can't always change one another's minds, nor can we do it immediately. And it's good to conduct ourselves with dignity and with sobriety and with courtesy and with all those other things that aren't supposed to be dropped by the way because of some new difficulty that we tend to get all engrossed in. So I think this is good for all of us in the present time with difficulties to remember. All the truths in John's ministry and in Paul's are very, very important. And no difficulty is so great that we should be encouraged to be careless in our courtesies and with the simple truths of the ministry, especially of the Apostle John. Little children love one another. And those kinds of things. We might say those are the ABCs. The brethren, I have sometimes felt, and I guess this is a digression, that we're sometimes so busy trying to get into the XYZs, which is right and proper to seek to, uh, in the sense of Joshua, to gain ground, that we forget the ABCs. And you know, young Christians, as they might uh, come amongst us or, or someone gets saved, you know, that's what they look at, don't they? They look at the ABCs. They say these brethren seem to be uh, talking about all these things that I don't quite understand yet. It all sounds very wonderful. What they see is the ABCs. They see the little things that are mentioned so simply and yet so powerfully in John's uh, epistles, for example. Little children, let us love one another. Love is of God. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. All these kinds of things. You know, there was a time in the history of Israel in the days of the judges... <clears throat> When one of the tribes, I think it was the tribe of Dan, was up on the mountain. And uh, the enemy was so so successful that uh, they had this wonderful mountain that they had possessed. And you and I may may uh, be on our knees and and, uh, and uh, beg and dig and seek to understand uh, that which has been committed to us in regard to the deep mysteries of God. 
But how terrible if in that pursuit and the possession of those higher truths, uh, the enemy takes hold of the valley. And after all, the valley is the place where daily life is experienced. The valley is the place where commerce, where roads are built, where things are shipped along the rivers, where fields are, where things are plowed, where people build houses. That's the day-to-day things. And how terrible, and I, I say this especially to myself and to others of us, having the privilege of being gathered to the Lord's name, how careful we need to be that we don't become a lopsided in that way and lose sight of these practical things. But here with David, <clears throat> David is <clears throat> has it laid upon him that he is going out into a very public type of warfare. And David is, uh, is indignant as having uh, a sentiment that's right towards Jehovah. That this, uh, this uncircumcised Philistine is not just defying the Hebrews, as he called them, but defying the living God. But you notice uh, in verse, uh, verse uh, 34, David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. And there came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him. And delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. And then verse 38. And Saul armed David with his armor, and he put an helmet of brass upon his head. Also he armed him with a coat of mail. And David girded his sword upon his armor, and he essayed to go, for he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. David put them off him. And he took his staff in his hand and chose some five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, and so on. To my knowledge, Scripture doesn't record these previous instances when David slew both the lion and the bear. seems to me as having read through that this is the first time you ever hear about something that took place back in David's personal life. But whatever it was, whenever it was, it happened. And it gave David confidence in the Lord that he was able, with the Lord's help, to overcome something that came his way in the pursuit of his rather mundane duties. He was taking care of his father's sheep. It was so mundane that when Samuel came out to anoint one of Jesse's uh, other seven sons, they didn't even bother to call David. He was out taking a, uh, doing a very mundane task. But that's where David met the lion and the bear. And David had success with the Lord's help. You might say in that type of warfare before he ever came forth and was used to the Lord in something more public. And again, this hails back to the aspect of things in Galatians 5. All of us has a lion and the bear that we have to tangle with. All of us has to fight the uh, uh, Satan's uh, attacks upon us. As uh, as some have said, as a lion in our day, he's the lion that is a lion of discouragement. And the bear would speak of those entanglements which are so, so treacherous for all of us as believers. David had good success in that warfare, and you and I have to too. Have I slain the lion and the bear in my personal life? Did I slay a lion and a bear a couple years ago, but I've got a whole other set of them this year? It's quite possible. Whatever it is in your life and in my life, this is where our attention needs to be. We need to, we need to look to the Lord 
that we'll have success in these kinds of personal things. You know, we read in 2 Timothy 2 about the <clears throat> no man that worth entangles himself in the affairs of this life. And what a solemn picture we have in Samson and with the Israelites in connection with Gibeon and other examples all through the inspired history of entanglements and what a disastrous effect it can have upon us. If the Lord lays upon me some some form of, of, uh, of earthly uh, occupation, well, that's one thing. If I feel clear that's what the Lord has for me, that's one thing. But to go out and to take things up and entangle myself in this present world, after all, as a soldier, uh, World War II, picture any example you want, uh, take a, a, a Canadian soldier over in uh, World War II, is going through France, is he going to stop and join the the Rotarians or something like that is just a, an absurd thought. Why, he's fighting a war. And how about you and I? Are we succumbing to the uh, bear hug of this world, especially perhaps those of us who are brothers who are out in this world on a daily basis? It's thoughts, it's attitudes, and all that it says that we have to accomplish in order to be successful or in order to... Uh, to, to uh, get all these wonderful things that they say we need security, whatever that is, all these other things. Well, we face these in our lives. And even if you've uh, laid aside your earthly, as a lot of the brethren here have no longer uh, work in that sense, why there are still these, uh, these trials and this type of warfare for you too, as I'm sure you'll be the first to admit. <clears throat> and so David had this success. He went out and with the Lord's help, he was used in a public way. But again... <clears throat> Saul's armor, is that going to do? No. It's, it's the new source of waters. It's the new cruise with the salt therein. It's the, it's the, uh, that which he had proved in his personal victories with the lion and the bear that he's going to use with Goliath. After all, if God has been so displeased with the first man that he sent his beloved son to put that man, to put Adam out of his sight forever, is he going to want to see us going around as it were and and uh, digging out certain attributes of him, say, oh, those tools, and we'll, we're going to salvage that, uh, that sword or that spear or something. As, as uh, men who win a battle, they go across the, the battlefield with the dead and the dying, and they say, oh, I want this and I want that. Is that what you and I know? Paul said, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Just to close with a verse in Isaiah, our time is gone. Isaiah chapter 2. And verse 4. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall uh, beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. We read in Ecclesiastes that there is a time for everything, a season for everything under the sun, a time of war and a time of peace. And so it's a wonderful thought to comfort our hearts that there will be a time when we can lay aside all the warfare of Galatians 5, perhaps this afternoon in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The last uh, second of that type of warfare will be forever behind us when we're caught up to be with and like the Lord Jesus. But still, you know, the Lord Jesus is going to come into this scene and the world is going to see him, see him in a different character.
I know uh, one of the brothers here uh, uses an expression that he quotes from a brother who's with the Lord now, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I'd never heard that before I came here. But whenever that expression is used, I think of Revelation uh, chapter 19, I believe it is. I think of the Lord Jesus coming out of heaven. And after all, we may know the Lord Jesus in that way as one who would be kind and gracious enough to turn in the midst of a public event and turn and to hear our cry as a blind Bartimaeus or to pick us up on his lap if we were a child or to comfort us in our sickness or our mother-in-law. But this world is going to see him in a character that they had no idea of. When I was a young boy, I remember going to a large place where they... I must have been quite small. I remember being put up on the pews. They always stood when they sang. And I was put up on the pew to be able to see. And I thought it was uh, so uh, inspiring when they sang that song. Uh, how does that go? Onward, Christian soldiers. You know, I, I didn't take in much. But I thought oh, that was a wonderful thing. I didn't know what, what kind of war they were talking about. Didn't know for many, many years. But the Lord Jesus is going to come in the character like David as a man of war. And he's going to establish everything on this earth, which is essential. It was this earth where his blood was shed. It was this earth where he was cast out. And it's this earth, you might say, that it's essential that God send him back as it were again. And he establishes rightful rule on this earth. No, as a brother has put it before me some years ago, it's not good enough, we might say, that he's given his rightful place in heaven. And that he has all the redeemed around him there. It's essential to the majesty of God that he give him his rightful place here, where the outrage took place. And that same, uh, same political entity, which, uh, which enforced, which, uh, you might say, empowered that spear into his side, will be faced again. When the Lord Jesus comes out of heaven as a man of war, his name is called the Word of God, and he has a vesture dipped in blood. And so, there will be continued, for a time, a state of, of warfare, of a state wherein we will learn in a fuller and deeper way than we do now what holiness is and the fact that God is glorified in judgment as well as glorified in his grace. But after that, there will be a time when all of this will be laid aside and how wonderful to just be able to ungird in Ephesians 6, which we read and didn't get into much. We read about being girded about with the truth, that which I need to apply to myself. And the breastplate of righteousness, which has to do with that which I am outwardly with others. Well, we can ungird ourselves without fear of defilement then. Without fear of ambush. Without fear of always being overtaken by the flesh or by the enemy. We'll be fully in possession of those things that the Lord Jesus has accomplished as a victor on the cross of Calvary. Well, perhaps we should look to the Lord.